Welcome to the Stubborn Tortoise Podcast. I'm Donna Pazdera. Today is going to come in three parts. Ooh. <laughs> and the only reason I do that is because they're all related topics or they're all related tales. And so I figured I'll just wrap them all together and give it to you and you can, you know, enjoy as you go. When I coined the phrase, the mental Sherpa, Oh, probably about five years ago when my friend Orly got me through my first 20 mile run. Boy, it was ugly. And it was just one of those things where if I didn't have somebody else there with me, I would probably have quit, <laughs> come up with an, you know, an excuse or a reason to just, oh, maybe I'll go do, do the mileage later. You know, we always have these little games we play with ourselves. And if you have somebody who's there to mentally cheerlead you along and just kind of help you get through it, kind of a misery loves company sort of thing, then you can usually get through these things not pretty much unscathed. I won't say it's pretty, but you can get through it. Um, and I guess I, I came up with this, this name because not unlike the Sherpas who help climbers uh, reach their summits, you know, at the top of mountains and whatnot, um, the mental Sherpa does pretty much the same thing just mentally without carrying your gear. I don't ask people to carry my gear for me. Um, so yeah, that's what this one's about. It's kind of entertaining. And again, you don't even have to be a runner to appreciate this. Um, it's just one of those, um, sort of things that you probably are wondering why in the world would anyone want to put themselves through this? But we do. And I think sometimes it's just to see what we, I think you find out what you're made of and it's, it's a, it's a good feeling when you're finished for sure. Um, so anyway, so this one is, uh, the, the first one is just called The Mental Sherpa. This took place in September of, I think it's 2014, yeah, so that, ooh, wow, that makes it, yeah, five years ago. So the 20-miler the is sort of a threshold for one's running career. So if you can do the 20-miler, then you can push further until the big 26.2, the marathon. But I wasn't going for the marathon. Oh, no, not me. <laughs> I plan to skip that one and go right to the status of being an ultra marathon runner. And anything beyond 26.2 is an ultra marathon. So it was the Friday evening before the run. And it appeared that nobody was going to be heeding my siren call to run with me the following morning. And my friend Orly texted me and asked me if I was going to run alone. And I explained that most of the usual suspects were saving themselves for the Brownsville Half Marathon on Sunday. And a few others were injured or unable. And I hated the idea of running alone for safety and psychological reasons. But how else was I going to get in the mileage? And he said he wouldn't let me run alone and that he would join me. I felt relieved but worried that I would slow him down. Are you sure? I asked he was sure. So just after 5.15 a.m., I wheeled into the Starbucks parking lot and Orly was already there. And he said that two groups had already taken off along with my friend Alejandro, who was also doing his first 20 miler. He's much faster than me. And so he just does his own thing. After a couple of minutes of getting my pack and stuff on, we were off. I put one earbud in and had my playlist on low so it would comfort me, but allow me to chat. I never considered the Rio Grande Valley a humid place, especially having moved there from Florida 10 years earlier. 
But by the, in the time that I'd been there, the humidity had certainly become an issue, and especially since I started running. <laughs> so on this particular morning, the humidity was 91% at that hour, and it took me about four miles to become a soaking wet mess. My stomach wasn't feeling very good, and we stopped at a park so I could use the restroom. Unable to make things happen, I continued on feeling nauseous and unhappy, and I started thinking about calling it. If I was already feeling this bad this soon, how would I feel much later? And it was around this point that Orly suggested that maybe one earbud was messing with my equilibrium. So I pulled it out, and not long after, I felt better. Well, how about that? Pro tip, isn't that interesting? And a little before the midpoint, we swung into a convenience store and got water and Gatorade. A few miles later, we ran across our friend Judith, and she was running 14 and a half with her husband, Fermin, who was riding behind her as SAG, support and gear. Fermin was like, wow, Donna, you're soaked. <laughs> it was true. My shorts, shirt, and shoes were drenched. My socks, they were squishing with sweat inside my new shoes, and the sun was barely up. And after chatting with Judith and Fermin, we just went ahead. After a pit stop, after a pit stop at Fireman's Park, my stomach felt better, and I felt better equipped to handle the remaining nine miles. Orly, still gung-ho about finishing his planned 26-miler, began goading me. Oh, come on. If you can do 20, what's another 6.3? He said with his characteristic maniacal laugh. You can skip the race and call yourself an ultra runner today. <laughs> the shortcut to glory, while appealing to my ego, was lost on my willpower. I had already mentally lowered the bar from 22 to 20 that morning, and I was intent on getting that 20 no matter what. My stomach was clutching again, and a short while later, we stopped at a convenience store where I made a dash for the restroom. Afterward, I picked up a cold Gatorade and a pack of peanut M&Ms. After the clerk wished me a nice day, I said, yeah, and about seven more miles. <clears throat> I ate a handful of candy and stuffed the rest of my pack. I looked down at my palms, and despite M&M's pledge to melt in your mouth and not in your hands, the color from the candy coating was already turning them into a rainbow. Wipe them on your shirt. It's wet, Orly said. Oh, good idea. Well, you know what? That sweat was good for something. <sighs> if there is one thing I've learned on these long runs is that you have to eat and drink, and especially because I sweat so much, do S-caps, uh, which are these sodium electrolyte tablets, and Orly was commanding me to drink more water. Did you eat all of your M&Ms? No, I replied. You need to eat them. Well, I can't run and eat, I explained. I fear that I'd choke on one, and that would be that. Well, we can stop and walk while you finish them. I was beginning to feel like I'd become one of Orly's kids, except that I'm nine years older than him. And he was being downright parental with me. And then he started goading me again. He talked about our route and how we were going to get in 22 or 24 miles. I whined, no, I'm only doing 20. A short while later, he was like, how are you feeling? I'm okay, I said, just kind of relieved that the end was getting closer. You're starting to get that look in your eyes. What? What look? The one where you think about quitting early. Oh, no. Hell no. I'm finishing this. The truth was, I was mentally picturing, picturing the route and how we'd get in those remaining miles as the Second Street Trail would be ending in another mile and a half. Orly, again being the more experienced runner, had enough sense to bring an extra pair of socks. That, or his lovely wife Kathy, packed them for him. 
Yeah, he sweated so much that he could wring out the sweat, and I don't even want to consider what my lone pair was like. Later, as we reached the path's end, we ended up on a narrow section of 2nd Street and ran single file to avoid getting hit by cars. By this point, the sun was in full force, and even though it was only 9.30 a.m., the sun was becoming unbearable, and it was in the mid-80s. Orly abandoned his plan of getting in 26. I'll get in the rest tonight. I'm sorry I'm so slow, I told him. I was feeling guilty. Our pace was anywhere from 10.30 to a 13-minute mile, but by this point it was going more on the high end, and that is when I didn't stop to walk. I could feel a wave of nausea hit me again, and I swooned a little. I didn't dare tell him because I was determined to get this thing done. We ended up on the north side of 10th Street and finally got near our finish, but we were a mile short. I didn't get up at this ungodly hour just to run 19 freaking miles, he said. I agreed. We'd finish no matter what. He suggested stopping by a Walgreens on the corner and get water. The clerks looked at us in amazement when they saw how sodden I was and when I explained what we were doing. 20 miles? I can't even run a mile. You know, that's so awesome, one of them said. Okay, let's try that again. 20 miles? I can't even run one mile. That is so awesome, one of them said. It'll be awesome in about a mile, I joked. <laughs> Once outside, we refilled our bottles. We sure do stop a lot, he said. I laughed and apologized again. That is one of my things. I know he knew what he was getting into when he was so gracious and mentally pulling me through. If Sherpas can assist climbers getting to the top of Everest, Orly became my mental Sherpa that morning. And when we hit the 20-mile mark, we high-fived. Come on, let's just get in 6.3 more, he joked. You feel bad now, but you won't feel any different. <laughs> my inner toddler, exhausted and cranky, returned. No, I whined. I think he was joking. And in the end, we made it, and I wouldn't have done it without him. He proved himself to be a dear friend who really wanted to help me, and I was grateful. Okay, so here comes part two, the mental Sherpa part two. Um, this one took place in January or early February of 2015. It was my first time pacing my friend Orly, who was tackling his first 100-mile um, race. It was at Rocky Raccoon, which is this very famous race. I mean, if you're into trail racing, uh, it was at this place, uh, Huntsville State Park, which is outside of Houston. And the, the, the trails over there tend to be a little flatter than at least a lot of the stuff that we go to in hill country. Very few rocks, thank God. Um, but the devil of that one is the roots. And there are some decent, you know, uh, gains in elevation. Um, so it, it's still very, you know, it's still got its own challenges to it. Uh, this is a, a race that attracts people from all over the world, quite honestly, and usually sells out and they have a wait list. So it's kind of a big deal. So he was tackling this and, and picked me, picked me <laughs> to be his pacer. Um, and I would catch him after he finished his third loop, uh, which they get five. So each loop was 20 miles, at least um, at that time. I think they've since changed the course. But um, anyway, so yeah, so my friend Norma, she was going to be his second pacer to sort of bring him home, which was a really br a good strategy because she's 
very um, intense and uh, purposeful and you know he picked me <laughs> just because I talk a lot I know so the night before there were seven of us <laughs> crammed into a super eight motel room I know that's a lot of people in a very small hotel room if you've ever stayed in a super eight they are not very big okay there were two beds like double beds <laughs> and in those beds we had Yvonne and Orly and Orly was very gentlemanly and stayed in his sleeping bag and then on, in the other bed was our were our friends um, Nancy and Bill uh, they're from outside of Austin and um, the rest of us took the floor which meant that was me Norma and Sammy we were all the pacers so we had to take the floor <laughs> Of course, as usual, it took me forever to fall asleep, and then the alarm sounded at 3 a.m. The race wouldn't start until 6, but everybody needed to get going and get to the park and line up for the start. So around 4.30, we got to the park and deposited Orly's drop bags, um, which were plastic containers filled with extra clothes, shoes, first aid, snacks, and batteries in their designated spots. And even though the temperatures were in the 50s, the breeze coming off the lake made it shiveringly cold. We trundled back to the truck and dozed until just before 6 a.m. And then after watching more than 400 headlamp runners take off, I had a good 16 or 17 hours to kill. Originally, I planned to be an aid station volunteer, but logistical concerns kept me from doing so. Instead, Norma and I hit up an IHOP, and then we went back to the hotel to nap. We missed seeing Orly come in from his first loop, but we made sure that we were around when he finished his second. Uh, he was making good time and, and was feeling good, so that made us believe that he was going to be in great spirits when I picked him up when he finished his third loop. Well, it wasn't quite that way. <laughs> so, in the years that I've known Orly, he's never met a meal that he didn't like. This is a guy who gets almost as excited about the post-race meal as the race itself. And when he came in from his third loop, it was around 10 p.m., he was hurting, dehydrated, and pretty cranky, but he was also getting a bladder infection, and he said he was peeing dark. So I went over to the finish line aid station and asked them for something warm for him to eat, and the guy pointed me to a pie tin with some quesadilla triangles along with some bacon. Bacon is something I know Orly loves, so I grabbed one of the bacon slices, and the guy encouraged me to grab them both because you never know if you'll get bacon again. And I excitedly brought the feast to him, and I was pleased that I'd found him some good stuff. He started chewing on the bacon. It's burnt. What? He sounded like a cranky toddler. And then when he tried the quesadilla, he put it down. It's made with American cheese. Oh boy. I was getting a glimpse of my future, and I could tell it was not what I expected. They say the fourth loop can make or break your race on this one. And I understand that. It's the middle of the night, the runner is fatigued and cranky, and they know they still have one more loop before there's a reprieve. So I'd done a little research and asked veteran runners on tips for pacing someone. Essentially, you are the selfless soul whose chief goal is to ensure that your runner is hydrated, fed, and as content as one can be after many hours on one's feet. One of my friends said that it wasn't about me, and there's no bitching even if I had a bone sticking out. I was ready. 
Orly picked me for this particular loop, Dead of Night, because I'm chatty. Yes, I got a C in conduct in first grade because I talk too much. I sort of envisioned it like that Daffy Duck cartoon when he has to shepherd the Tasmanian devil back home. Taz is miserable unless he's sung to, well, most of the time. And I started off trying to be funny and chatty and supportive, but he was taciturn. And so I decided it would be best just to leave him be. It's up to the runner to decide whether the pacer is behind, alongside, or in front of him. Or really want to be in front to lead the way. <laughs> I started off way too fast. It was like a 9 or a 10 minute mile, and he yelled at me to slow it down. I kept an eye on my Garmin to make sure that we kept it at an 18 minute mile pace, or he'd miss the cutoff to begin the final loop at 6 a.m. And the trail is ridiculously rooty, but navigable. And I'd already heard a horror story about a runner earlier in the day who broke her ankle at mile five. Ooh, I wanted to play it safe. So I held my flashlight high in my right hand to focus on the ground while my headlamp illuminated the path ahead. And despite the common rhetoric that the trail is flat, there was a handful of challenging uphill climbs. And for me, just doing it once, it wasn't that big of a deal. But for somebody who had already faced these obstacles three times earlier... It may as well have been a mountain. So we walked up the hills and jogged the flats as best as we could. Pacing a runner is not unlike having a toddler. In our case, I had a toddler who had to stop and pee every five minutes. I am not kidding. I could tell the bladder issue needed remedying, so I texted Norma and asked her to find this over-the-counter medicine called Azo, A-Z-O, which helps relieve the urgency of bladder infections. I was grateful that she could do this as I had no other options. And I was also grateful that we had cell phone service, which isn't always the case at these races. And then a while later, she texted me photos of the product boxes asking which one to get. <laughs> I love modern technology. And I told her I would text her in a while and have her meet us at an aid station. Another bonus about this race because most of the aid stations are reachable by vehicle. I have a big blister on the bottom of my foot. I need to pop it, he informed me as we neared the second aid station known as Damnation because it's near a dam. And I suggested we wait until we got to the station and I'd give it a shot. Luckily, there's a volunteer named Lynn Ballard who is running the thriving practice of popping people's blisters at Damnation. We ran into Sammy and Yvonne, and Yvonne was complaining of also having blister issues. The course is also really sandy, and the grit gets into the porous shoes and make your feet feel like a real mess. One guy was being treated when we arrived. The other, Rick Posada, a Houston area runner I met a couple of summers ago, was next. We chatted, and then Orly plopped in a chair to wait his turn. It took a good half hour before Orly was back on his feet. Lynn explained that the blister had already popped and was starting to heal, but he still treated it. From there, we set off on a long, desolate six-mile loop that brought us back to damnation in more than an hour. Orly's plan when we got back to the aid station was that he would get a boost drink from his drop bag and keep going. He also planned not to stop once we hit the finish. He handed me his water bottle to refill, and then he went for the boost. And I was asking one of the volunteers about whether Ozzo sounded like a good remedy for his bladder issue, and she agreed. And so we continued talking, and I waited for Orly. And after a few minutes, I turned around and looked for him, and he had disappeared. As if on cue, a steady rain began, fogging my glasses and making it hard to see. I went up and down the trail about a half mile. I ran into my friend Ace and told him I'd lost Orly. I figured if he saw him, he could tell him that I was looking for him. 
Meanwhile, I started to silently panic. I kept imagining him, brain-fogged, wandering off into the woods to pee and then curling up under a tree to sleep. Crazy thoughts filled my head. Kathy, his wife, would kill me. David, our friend and coach, would be furious with me. Why did he walk off without me? I turned around and came back to the aid station, hoping he might still be there. I lost my runner, I wailed, trying to stem the rising panic. And with no sign of him, I knew that he had to have gotten further than my earlier trek, so I started running as fast as I could. Unfortunately, I tripped on a root, hit the ground really hard. The impact knocked the flashlight from my hand and the wind out of me. A couple of guys helped me up and said there's no reason to sprint as my runner would probably not be moving that fast. I continued on for what seemed like hours, and then a couple of folks in Team RWB shirts spotted me. Are you Donna? Yeah. Your runner's up there waiting on a bench. Oh, I thanked them, I think, and raced ahead, shouting to Orly about why he did that. In his adult mind, it made sense. He said he was going to keep going. I just didn't expect him to go without me. And he said he tried to tell me, but I was too busy gabbing at the aid, with the aid station volunteer. I called Norma and told her to meet us at the next aid station in an hour or so. Orly was now complaining that his camelback was rubbing blisters on his back. I decided not to coddle him this time. Again, it's like having a child who feigns illness not to go to school. Is that affecting your running? No. Well, then let's keep moving. We have to make the cutoff. I felt sort of bad for being mean, so I tried to joke. Hey, how are your teeth? Huh? My teeth? Yeah. Do they hurt? No. Why would my teeth hurt? See? There's something that doesn't hurt. That's just hilarious, he said dully. Oh, well. Around this time, we encountered a pack of people who were moving not unlike the zombies in The Walking Dead, and I am not making that up. Their gaits were stiff and awkward, and they moved slowly. I had to suppress a giggle. I could also tell that he had still some fight in him, and as I would pick up the pace, he would follow me, moving in a sprightly manner. I took this as a good sign. I knew we were pushing the 6 a.m. cutoff, and I wanted to build in some cushion for Norma, who had six hours to get him through the final loop. But I knew that last loop would be just a little bit easier on him mentally. And by the time we got to the final aid station, it was around 4.15 a.m., and I had hoped that we would have been finished by this point, but it was not to be. Orly was still having issues with his feet. Norma was already waiting for us, and we gave him the medicine. And then she meticulously took off one of his shoes and socks and put Vaseline on his foot. In the interest of time, we decided to just do one foot at that point, and I could get the other one later. We had an hour and a half to make four and a half miles, and I felt pretty confident that we could do it. Orly was moving a little faster, excited by the approach of the finish line, and the med medicine may have helped him not pee so much, which also helped. He was reporting golden streams when he did go. We later realized that the medicine colors one's urine, but that's still a good sign nonetheless. And then about three miles from the finish, he yelled. He rolled his ankle and complained that it hurt like hell. I knew it did, but we didn't have much choice but to continue. A bit later, I pulled out my phone, and the time read 5.33 a.m. By my estimate, we had 30 minutes to cover a mile. He had slowed again, and I started panicking. Come on, Orly, let's go, I shouted for easily the thousandth time that night. I ran ahead, searching for lights at the finish. I looked at the time. It was 5.52 a.m. We weren't going to make it. Come on, buddy. We've got eight minutes. 
For a brief moment, I considered taking his ankle timing chip, putting it on, running ahead, and tagging the mat so they could make the cutoff. And that was sort of like the good parent mindset. But I feared that he'd get disqualified, so I just let that idea go. (laughs) Finally, I saw the red lights of the time clock just ahead. I pulled out my phone. It was past 6 a.m. He'd missed the cutoff. I didn't want to say anything, so I waited until he caught up to me. How you doing, buddy? Horrible. Do you want to call it quits? My ankle hurts like hell. I don't think I can do another loop. Okay. Inside, I was relieved that he made the decision before it was made for him. Did we miss the cutoff? And then I started crying. Yes. I'm so sorry. I feel like I failed you. I know. I know. It's not about me. And by now, I was a blubbering idiot while he stoically went to the finish line. I saw Norma all excited, and I felt bad for her because I knew how much she wanted to run. And as he handed in his timing chip, a volunteer began handing him the finisher's belt buckle. I only made it four loops, he said, and the volunteer quickly pulled the buckle away. And then I felt guilty because this was his first DNF, did not finish. And I had already had two, and I felt like maybe I had cursed him. Almost immediately afterward, the Orly that we know and love returned. He looked relieved. He was joking and lighthearted. I handed him my phone to call Kathy while I went inside the aid station tent to get him something to eat. I was still really emotional and teary. I ran in the ace again and told him what happened and started crying. I asked one of the volunteers for food for my runner, and I was still crying. My runner didn't finish, and I feel like it was my fault. I don't think anyone knows what to say in those situations, so I just whimpered off in the darkness. In truth, even if he had made the cutoff, we agreed he probably wouldn't have made it next cutoff at 8 a.m. So I think we all learned a few things about this beast known as the 100 miler. Next time we'll have a different strategy. Every race you learn something, and he has already vowed to return next year, and I will happily pace him if he'll have me. Just a little side note on that. Orly did return the next year and decided to go without pacers, and he finished. Go Orly. Since then, he has done Brazos Bend 100 miler once. He has done the Snowdrop 55 hour race. He's done that 100 miler twice. I hope I haven't forgotten anything. Um, so yeah, this guy he can do these 100 milers. I'm I'm very proud of him and. I also helped pace him on the uh, Brazos 100 miler too a couple of years later, um, which was really exciting. So uh, the final piece of this mental Sherpa chapter took place it was a year ago, December. So was that 2017? And this was the Brazos Bend 100, and I was one of three pacers for my friend Sarisa. This was her first try at doing a 100-mile race. And the difference with this particular course is that it's really flat. I mean, it's flat. And it's pretty, uh, you know, there's not a lot of technical stuff to it. Um, You know, the only thing that, you know, can really bother you, I think, this would be personally, um, I kind of find the course a little boring because there's a lot of out-and-backs and I just think mentally that would be sort of challenging to do. Um, but nonetheless, that's that was, you know, it's a great race and it draws people from all over the place. And um, so I was pacer number two 
of three. And, uh, and again, I got the middle of the night shift. So, so it was somewhere in the neighborhood of four o'clock in the morning last Sunday when we looked up and noticed the stars. They twinkled vividly against the black sky. It was 38 degrees and crisp. Sarisa broke into song. The stars at night are big and bright. Clap, 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 clap. I smack my mittens hands together. Deep in the heart of Texas, we both sang. And we couldn't remember the rest of the song's lyrics, so we just settled on a couple of rounds of the first verse. No, we were not intoxicated. I was pacing Sarisa on loop five of six at the Brazos Bend 100-mile race. The singing was a means to an end, keeping her upbeat and awake. But I needed to make sure that she was fed, watered, and in good spirits while under my watch. A good pacer needs to be selfless and strategic. And it's about getting your runner across the finish line. You have to think ahead for them um, because they're just trying to keep one foot in front of the other. I refer to it as being a mental Sherpa. And again, I got the middle of the night shift mainly because of my experience as a pacer and because I'm a talker. <laughs> and so I got to the park just before sundown. The temperature had fallen dramatically as it got dark, and I considered just hanging around the finish line or snoozing in my car as I waited my turn. But I decided to head to the warmth of the hotel once I saw Sarisa come in from her second loop and Angie, her first pacer, take off. And it was a little before 7 p.m. at that point. And the hotel, which was about 30 minutes away, was a godsend. Mary Lou, one of Cerise's best friends and her final pacer, got the room so we wouldn't have to be exposed to the elements while we waited. And I crawled into a bed, switched off the lights, and fell into a restless sleep. Angie kept me updated as they reached the aid stations, and then my alarm went off at 10.30. And I groggily looked at my phone. They had about seven miles left. I scrambled for my gear and headlamp. I got a cup of tomato soup from the hotel and brought it for Sarisa. And I got to the park around 11.30. I put the soup in the tent and then crawled inside and waited, trying to stay out of the wind. The generator for the aid station kept sputtering, killing the lights and heaters. A few moments later, it coughed back to life, illuminating everything once again. This went on about a half dozen times. Restless, I got up and waited at the finish line. It was about 12.20 a.m., I spotted a tall, slender figure wearing a blue and white starred Wonder Woman poncho and a pretty girl who just was a tad shorter in a red, white, and green elf poncho. <laughs> Angie suggested that I wear the elf poncho because it kept her warm throughout the loop. And as dorky as it looked, I was game. And as an added bonus, it featured a little jingly bell on the hood. And I gave Sarisa the soup and commanded her to eat, despite that it was cold by this point. And I also got her a cup of instant coffee, which was an unexpected perk, <laughs> as it provided warmth and caffeine. I waved off Angie to go back to the hotel, and Cerise and I began our 16.8-mile journey around 12.30 in the morning. I kept two watches on my arm, one to tick off the miles and the other to keep track of time. I had to get her in before 6 a.m. so that she'd have plenty of time for that final loop and beat the noon cutoff. We walked for a while as we started the loop, and I was good with that. I just kept an eye on her pace and tried to keep it at a brisk 15-minute mile. She'd been falling asleep on her previous loop, and I was well acquainted with that problem after pacing Orly a few times. And we talked about life, our families, and whatever else I could think of. And she never dozed off and was happy that she felt better on this loop than the previous one. Runners are highly suggestible when under the influence of dozens of miles, so I took advantage of this when we got to the aid stations. 
I recommended that she drink instant coffee, eat instant potatoes and ramen broth, the most amazing concoction you can find at a winter trail race, and Coke. This did the trick. She was like a reinflated balloon after each visit. In fact, she started looking forward to it. And as we'd approach the aid station, I'd suggest that she'd use the restroom while I got the workers busy prepping the hot water for the coffee and potatoes. And by the time she returned, everything was ready. The only downside to the night shift is that Cerisa was tired of the dark and impatient for sunrise. I told her it wouldn't be long. Fortunately, we had a couple of unusual experiences just ahead just to keep things moving. About a mile from the finish, I heard this ba 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 up ahead. It sounded like an echoey drum line. I thought maybe someone was performing for the runners at the finish line. And then I recognized a familiar figure in the darkness. My friend Stephen Monty. As usual, he was pulling a tire. Monty is handsome, an attorney, an Uber driver, and an all-around interesting guy. I don't know anyone else who would pull a 22-pound tire around a course for 75 miles. I chatted him up for a bit, and he said he was dropping at 75 miles. Monty and his tire make him sort of a trail-running celebrity, to wit. A woman spotted him in the darkness, and she asked how much more he had to go, and then he explained his plan. Monty, just get rid of the tire and just run the last loop. He grinned and said that he had accomplished his goal. And by now, Sarisa was ahead of me, and I needed to catch her. I bade him farewell and found my runner. About a quarter mile from the finish, a couple of girls approached us and warned us to check on the guy lying on the side of the trail. Apparently, he was refusing to get up. And I instructed Cerisa just to keep going, and I would check on the guy. And I saw a gray-haired man with a big gray beard, twinkling blue eyes, and short shorts sitting on the side of the trail. Are you okay? I asked. He said he was just fine, stretching his back, and that he'd... he also had a cut on his knee, but he waved it off as a scratch. And I asked if he was done, as in his final loop. And he said he was done, as with the race. I didn't know what else to do, so I just let him be. And I got Sarisa over the finish by 5.40 a.m. It was roughly four hours and 50 minutes to finish the loop. I was satisfied. Mary Lou was there ready to take her in. I handed off the magic poncho to Mary Lou as if it was some sort of talisman. I ran into the medic tent and I explained to Becky Spalding, the nurse, what had happened to the, uh, with the man on the trail side. And she asked for a description. Short shorts, beard, check, and check. Oh, that's just Gordy, she said, waving her hand to indicate that this was how he was. Gordy, I realized, was Gordon Ainsley, the guy who created the Western States 100, the Boston Marathon of ultra running. I remembered his name from reading Born to Run, but I'd never seen a photo of him, which explained why I had no idea who the guy on the trail was, and I felt kind of mortified and awestruck. The sun was just beginning to rise as I returned to the hotel. I was beat and ready to shower and crash for a few hours. Angie, who was rested and hungry, suggested getting breakfast, so I cleaned up and we went downstairs to eat. We got regular updates from Mary Lou. I managed to sleep for about an hour when we got word that they were on their way in. I was so exhausted, but I was so happy to hear the news. I drove Angie to the park and we waited for Sarisa to come in. I spotted Monty and Gordy sitting, on, sitting in camp chairs at the finish line, and I approached Gordy and asked him how he was feeling, and he said he felt better. He asked about my shirt, which came from a trail race uh, the previous year called The Circus. It had a provocative slogan, damn everything but The Circus, referring to an E.E. E. Cummings poem. 
We all chatted a little more, and Monty asked if I had any soap or shampoo, as he'd forgotten his. And I started over to my car to retrieve my toiletries when I saw two figures approaching the finish. I ran back to the finish line and fumbled with my phone. Cerisa, still wearing the Wonder Woman poncho, ran across the finish line as we all cheered. Race director Rob Goyan handed her the spoils, a shiny belt buckle. It was so worthwhile to share that moment. It took each of us and Cerise's determination to see her through. During our loop, she asked me if I would ever do a 100-miler. Hell no! I see what you guys go through, and I don't think I could do it. Plus, I like pacing people, and I'm good with that. I am eyeing my second 50-miler at Brazos Bend. I figure I know the course, so I may as well do it. A while later, I noticed Gordy, now shirtless, holding court with some admirers. Angie came with me in case I lost my nerve. (laughs) I asked if I could get my photo taken with him, and he agreed. Instead of me just standing next to him, he asked if I wanted to sit in his lap. He offered a knee jiggle, which cracked me up. I gamely agreed, and I looked slightly awkward, but was happy to meet one of trail running's greats. And that doesn't happen every day. So, yeah, being a mental Sherpa can be an adventure just in its own manner and uh, I really enjoy it I I love pacing people because most of the time they're not going to be moving fast and I'm not either and um, I feel like I'm selfless enough to try to get people you know to finish their goals and I I really really enjoy that and um, I think it's just part of my you know DNA if you will Um, so that's what I've got for you this time And uh, again, don't forget to subscribe, send me comments um, and whatnot. Love hearing from people because I have no idea if anybody's even listening to this thing. I hope so. I hope so because I'm really enjoying doing this and uh, I hope you enjoy listening. So I'll see you next time.